Neil. The nothing personal word of the day is Neil. We start off nothing personal with the word of the day and we get into sports. There's been a lot of sports and entertainment to talk about even during the pandemic. Somehow a few of you have even found the new YouTube channel and you listen and you download and subscribe and I appreciate it. But today I want to start the show talking about kneeling and talking about what happened a few days ago in Minneapolis and what LeBron James did in response, why he did what he did, and what it says about where we are today and the big difference between LeBron James and Michael Jordan off the court. A couple days ago, George Floyd died under the knee of a police officer in Minneapolis. He was handcuffed. Keep in mind, and this is not a this is not a caveat. I'm thankful to CBS for nothing personal. I always will be for believing in this show. And I'm not asking to be political. I this is not to me about the president, the Republicans, the Democrats. It really has nothing to do with that. My point is to talk about something pretty different. A couple of days ago, George Floyd was being investigated, an alleged forgery. We don't really have all the facts. He was put in handcuffs on the ground. There was a police officer in Minneapolis, put his knee to his neck. There is video out there. Couldn't breathe. There were people videoing because that's what happens now. Everyone's got a video camera. You know, it's very hard to do anything that's not recorded or discussed. It's hard to get context when you see snippets. In life, in general, it's hard to look at a video and get context for it. In this case, the context we have is George Floyd couldn't breathe, couldn't resist arrest. He was handcuffed. We don't know what happened before the arrest. We don't. We may one day, but we don't now. What we do know is that he died. He didn't die right there. He was taken to the hospital in Minneapolis, either on his way to the hospital or in the hospital. He died. And what started was tremendous unrest. That unrest has led to riots in Minneapolis. One person was shot and killed near the riots, unclear if it's related to the riots. Looting commenced, reminded me of the riots in Los Angeles back in 1992. There's been relative silence from well-known athletes throughout the years. We've talked about the difference. We talked about it when discussing the last dance. We said that Michael Jordan owns up to the fact that he's not politically, doesn't want to be political. He's a ball player. LeBron James has never had that view. He never wants to shut up and dribble. Back in the 90s, any sort of racial unrest, you'd think you'd hear from Jesse Jackson, the Reverend, the Reverend Al Sharpton. There'd be leadership in that way. I don't know who holds that leadership baton these days, but it seems more and more that it could be athletes. And when athletes choose to express their views or their leadership, they can do it in several ways. If they've got fame, power, and money, you can be LeBron. If you have talent, you can be Colin Kaepernick. Super Bowl 
quarterback Colin Kaepernick was. I believe he went to the Super Bowl but didn't win. I don't I actually don't know that Coca whether he won a Super Bowl or didn't. He actually did. He lost. He went to the Super Bowl and lost. Colin Kaepernick kneeled. That's the word of the day. Why was he kneeling? People thought that he was kneeling because he was protesting the national anthem or that he was in some way doing something to denigrate veterans who fought for the flag, who fought for freedom. I've been very public about this and private. You know my view of veterans and the work they do so that I can have the life I have and you can all listen to this show and have the life you have. We live under the blanket of democracy that is given to us by veterans. Colin Kaepernick was clear. He was clear. He said that I kneel because I want people to understand that there is police brutality. I want people to understand that there is not accountability when people are being murdered, when black people are being murdered or killed by cops, George Floyd gets killed. The four cops in Minneapolis are fired immediately, not put on paid leave. And then LeBron comes out with his 65 million followers and says, draws attention to it and says, do you understand now? And he has a picture of Colin Kaepernick kneeling and a picture of the police officer kneeling. And he was a white police officer. And I got to thinking about that sort of nonviolent way of protesting, the nonviolent way of drawing attention when in our country you have the right, you have freedom of expression, you have the right to protest. But I wonder why LeBron or anybody doesn't come forward and say that violent protests with looting and crimes being committed, how is that helpful? Even the mayor of Minneapolis who came out and said these men should be tried, these police officers, but in the same breath came out and said, stealing from Target, breaking down the window, setting fire to stores, stealing things. People were filling carts with items from Target. I understand what is happening in terms of the class system, in terms of poverty. I I really do. I can't say that I've experienced it. I can't say that I've lived through it, but I can tell you intellectually, I understand it. But there's got to be a better solution that we call for than crime, than looting. That doesn't draw positive attention to what is a very real issue of police brutality. Think if we're going to kneel and LeBron's going to stand up, we have to do it all the time and we have to do it on the issues and give both sides of the issues. I think it's okay for LeBron to stand up and say, I'm kneeling. And by the way, that's not oxymoronic. You can stand up and say, I am kneeling and I am aligned with the family of George Floyd. I'm aligned with anybody who has been brutalized by anybody because of race. But that does not give you an open invitation to commit crime or be violent. I just want everyone to think about it how you protest things, how you decide when, what you're going to do when you take a stand. Because it's your decision. Some of us care deeply enough to take stands about certain things. Some of us don't. But if you want to be impactful, why else take a stand? Are you taking a stand to get some diapers or some wipes? Or are you taking a stand to effectuate change? And if you're trying to effectuate change, then you need to be laser focused on the people who can help you effectuate that change. And any sort of focus that's lost by looting or other crimes being committed in the name of the original crime, 
just don't see it. In sports, there's been, God, I, I got a few hours sleep last night. And I, uh, I missed a few interesting things during those hours. You know the name Trevor Bauer. You know the name Scott Boris. You know the name Max Scherzer. We talk about him on the field. We talk about Trevor Bauer. He's that pitcher who was traded from the Indians to the Reds. He's the guy in the Indians who, when he was being taken out of the game by Terry Francona, took the ball and whipped it into the center field seats and then got traded. He's the guy who says, I'll only sign a one-year deal. He's the guy who has these podcasts and all these other things where he gives his view and his opinions on thing, things, mostly things that I don't think that he really focuses on. We know Scott Boris, my view, and it's not personal with him. It's the fact that he's got a business to run. He chooses to run the business in the way he does. He's getting absolutely in the way of what's going on between the union and the owners. And then you've got Max Scherzer, Really, really one of two of the great examples of a long-term contract for a pitcher that works. You're talking about a my one criticism of him. I believe that I was critical of him. I believe he hurt himself, Coca. Didn't Max Scherzer, when he was fooling around during BP, I think he bunted a ball off his face and he got a black eye, but he made his next start because that's what he does. He is a bulldog, one of the best pitchers I've seen in my generation. Although I don't know what that means. I don't mean my generation. In my 45 years of watching baseball, I can say I can evaluate it starting when I was seven. But yesterday, Max Scherzer came out. You know what's happening with MLB and the MLBPA. MLB sent a document, a proposal to the players saying, here's your pay cut. Mike Trout, you got a big one. Pete Alonso, you got a small one. Okay, let's play. But don't forget, we can't shower. The union came back with disappointment. We covered it. Very disappointed. Well, Max Scherzer decided he wanted to release his own statement. Not Tony Clark, the head of the union. Max Scherzer, who's one of eight members of the executive subcommittee who is involved in the negotiations with the commissioner and the representatives of the commissioner and two of the owners. Max Scherzer came out and said, After discussing the latest developments with the rest of the players, there's no reason to engage with MLB in any further compensation reductions. We have previously negotiated a pay cut in the version of prorated salaries, and there's no justification to accept a second pay cut based upon the current information the union has received. I'm glad to hear other players voicing the same viewpoint and believe MLB's economic strategy would completely change if all documentation were to become public information. Wow. Let me explain what that is and why he said what he said. Max Scherzer's agent, I'll give you one guess. I'm not even going to tell you who his agent is. Are you, do you really not know? There are eight members of the executive subcommittee, eight players. One agent represents three of those players. One agent who has been involved in negotiating some of the biggest contracts in MLB history, but also gets involved in absolutely furthering his own personal agenda. As Trevor Bauer pointed out, by the way, Max Scherzer is one of those players. Elvis Andrews, James Paxton, they're on the committee. All represented by Scotty. 
Max Scherzer didn't discuss this with the rest of the players. He may have discussed it with the player reps, other members of the committee. There's been no call with, that's just for math. Remember what we do. We say 30 players on a team. We multiply it by 30. And that's what we say are members of the union. Even though there's more, some people say 40 times 30 for 1,200. Let's just say 1,000 members of the union. It's a different number, but it's 1,200, 1,100, whatever it is, but say 1,000. Scott Boris represents 10% of those players. 3% of those players are on the executive subcommittee. Max Scherzer may have discussed it with many of the players, but he certainly didn't discuss it with all the players. Too many. Says we negotiated a pay cut in the version of prorated salaries. Let me explain for the final time on Nothing Personal until tomorrow. Prorated salary is not a pay cut. How many times do I have to explain the concept? How many times until people understand when you get paid to play 162 games and you play 81 games and make half of your pay, that's not a pay cut. That's called getting a prorated salary. Not a pay cut. What the owners are now offering and suggesting is a pay cut. That's when you play half your games, but don't get half your salary. So there's no justification to accept a second pay cut. It's a first pay cut. You can say there's no justification to accept a first pay cut, but the reason why Max Scherzer is saying a second pay cut is that that is what Scott Boris has been arguing from the beginning. He has been so public saying the March 26th agreement between the players and the owners says that the players will receive their pro rata salaries based on the number of games played hard stop, except he's not giving you the rest of the document. The rest of the document is clear. There's a provision that says if there are no fans, the owners have a chance to reopen to explain. To explain why it's not economically feasible to open the season with no fans. Then Scherzer says, it would all change if all documentation were to become public. I've texted with a bunch of players. I've spoken to a few. I've spoken to a bunch of agents. I've spoken to myself, which, by the way, is the most common thing I do. I have no sources. I don't release any information. I don't quote people. I don't say, according to sources, the following things are true. It's not my job. There's great people at CBS and other places that do that. There is a major disconnect right now. Because players have always wanted the books to be open. When I say the books to be open, they've always wanted the owners to show their financials. How much money do you make? How much money does the team make? How much money do your other businesses make? What's your baseball-related revenue? How many people actually did come to games? What did they pay? How much parking do you give away free? Do I get enough free parking, free tickets? They want to see open books. Max Scherzer's statement that it would all change if the documentation were to become public, meaning if all of MLB would open its books and the whole world would see, therefore it would be, boom, we've got a solution. Everybody's rolling in dough. Pay the money. Give them raises. It's preposterous. And this is not me being an owner's hack. I'm not in management anymore. A commonly held misperception. My experience is management, I grant you. 
but I don't always agree. I've had plenty of arguments and discussions and fights and intellectual discourse with people on the ownership side, with agents, with players. There's certain players during games who want to get involved in serious discussions about union issues, and I'm in. I don't always agree with the ownership side. The players with whom I've spoken will acknowledge that there are times I say, listen, we're completely taking advantage of you here. We are completely using the following four rules, not violating one part of the agreement, like service time. I've had more talks with players about service time manipulation. I always tell them the truth. Yes, we're manipulating service. If the books were opened, it would not lead to anything. Because the reality is that what those books show is that sometimes teams make money. Sometimes teams lose money on an operating basis. Sometimes it's a better year. Sometimes it's a worse year. But owners always, and this is a very interesting misconception going on right now. Revenues have gone up by billions of dollars. Where's the money to the players? The fact is that player payroll has always been roughly in the 50% range of revenue when you add up player payroll. What players don't ever give accounting to, which made me crazy. So let me give you an example of when there's a payroll. You read about in your papers and in your magazines, the 25-man payroll. The 25-man payroll is the amount of money paid to the 25-man on the opening day roster. Do you know how much I care about the 25-man opening day payroll? Zero. As an operator of a business who's in charge of telling the owner how much cash needs to be given to the company at the end of the year or how much cash needs to come or can come from the company back to the owner. By the way, never made a distribution to our owner. But that said, the opening roster doesn't mean a thing. What doesn't that count? Well, let me count thy ways. Do you know that when you get a salary in your job and you've got benefits, I'm just curious. Uh, let's say you make $60,000 a year and your company is paying for 50% of your health insurance. And let's say your health insurance premium is $1,000 a year. You pay $500, your company pays $500 for you. So while your salary may be $60,000 to you, in fact, the salary to the company is $60,500. And you think that's nothing. That's like an overrun in a stadium when someone says you're building a half a billion dollar stadium, just change my carpet, give me a different chair. They're not thinking about the hundreds of thousands of other requests you're getting. There are employees all across the board where their expense to the company is greater than what their payroll actually is, than what their salary is. Retirement benefits, health benefits, payroll taxes. You know what those are? Payroll taxes. So the number that goes into the payroll amount for a team is not just adding up the salaries that the newspaper gives you for the 25 guys on the opening day roster. It doesn't count any of your other expenses to players not on your 40-man roster who aren't on your 25-man roster. Those players are in the minor leagues. It doesn't take into account what you're paying your minor leaguers. And I agree, it's not a lot. But let's say it's another couple million dollars. Millions tend to add up. So opening the books is never going to happen. And the reason why it's never going to happen is that the union has more access than they're letting on and that the players are letting on. 
the commissioner's office has access to everybody's books. The formula that is not part of collective bargaining, but it's just a math equation of the amount of revenue that goes toward player payroll is known by the players and it's known by the owners. When I first got into the game, it was going bankrupt in 2000, 2001. Teams were losing money hand over fist. The amount of money going toward payroll was well above 50%. And it came back down in the 47, 48% range. And it hovers around 49, 50. Do you know what owners do when they get money from the commissioner in a distribution? And why the commissioner historically has not liked distributing money to teams? And why he keeps a war chest? for strikes or for lockouts or for investment purposes because all owners do with the money they get that they hadn't counted on getting is they give it to the players. They sign another player. They increase their payroll. Just take the minimum salary from 15 years ago. Ask a player, what was it, 180, 250 grand? Now it's almost $600,000 times 10 guys. That's a difference of $400,000 minimum. That's the difference. That's another 4 million on your payroll net, net every single year, just from the minimums going up the way they have. It is critical for players and owners to understand that there will never be a meeting of the minds. The players will always think that owners are lying to them. The owners will always think the players are overpaid and only want to get paid for past performance and will not give money back if their current performance stinks. These are guaranteed contracts in a way that the NFL doesn't have. You pay a player, and if they end up not being good, you're stuck. You've got them. You're paying them every penny. So what's the Scott Boris have to do with this? Why did I mention Trevor Bauer? Because Trevor Bauer actually is the first player I've seen. He ripped Scott Boris in a tweet yesterday. He said, I'm hearing a lot of rumors about a certain player agent meddling in MLB PA affairs. If true, and at this point, these are only rumors, he said, I have one thing to say. Scott Boris, rep your clients however you want to, but keep your damn personal agenda out of union business. Well, Trevor Bauer is speaking truth. It's not a rumor, Trevor. If you're watching nothing personal, it is not a rumor. I can confirm to you that Scott Boris always interjects himself and medals in Major League Baseball Players Association negotiations. He was angry after the 2016 collective bargaining agreement. He was angry at the changes made to the amateur draft and how amateurs get paid because they got paid less money, which hurts his commissions. Remember what Scott Boris does when he wants to get a player to sign. He says, all these other agents are offering you and the amateur draft five to $8 million. I'm going to hold out and get you 20. And then he takes the commission of that 20. Well, now that they're slotting in the draft, there's really no need for an agent. You get the slot. That's it. Sometimes under the slot. There's no secret that Scott Boris has been upset with Tony Clark, and rightly so, in my opinion, in that Tony Clark in the last collective bargain agreement got out bargained. He was much more focused on getting all of the players to approve and agree with what he was doing, much more focused on short-term player comfort issues like days off and how many seats. Can you imagine this was part of a collective bargain agreement? How many empty seats on a bus when the team can take a bus or a train or a plane when an afternoon game would have to be an afternoon, not at night, so they could have more rest. 
which they would never do. And I would laugh with players in the clubhouse. We'd laugh about it. Yeah, we're not getting into LA at 2 a.m. anymore. Yeah, we get to get in at 11, so we get three more hours out. That's the joke of it. You get in at 2 a.m., all the players complain, but they really weren't. They're just going out anyway, which I'm fine with because then they sleep till noon and then come to the ballpark and then not win 81 games. I'm fine with it. Scott Boris was angry at all those things happening, and he's been getting involved, and other agents have had enough, and other players have had enough. Max Scherzer is saying that all players are together, that it's a kumbaya. It's not true. I've had an argument with a player this morning about whether or not Max Scherzer actually wrote this statement. I know Trevor Bauer wrote his tweet, but did Max Scherzer write this statement, or was it Scott Boris? I say Scott Boris. He says Max Scherzer. I agree, Max Scherzer. I've met Max Scherzer. Smart. Right. But there's no way that Max Scherzer is sending out a statement that is not approved by his agent. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. The union saw it. Boris saw it. The problem with Trevor Bauer doing what he did is that he doesn't have the credibility that certain other players would have because he's such an outlier. But the reality is that because he's an outlier, that is why he did it. No other player would stand up and say what Trevor Bauer said. And even if nine times out of 10, you're the person in the movie theater yelling fire and everybody loses their mind, it's the boy who cried wolf. When you say only one interesting, correct thing out of 20 things you said, people say, hey, 5% isn't good enough. We need a higher rate of honesty and correctness for us to pay attention to anything you're saying. Just trying to tell you here on Nothing Personal, what Bauer said is right. And this story is not going to come to an end Anytime soon. I also want everyone to breathe on one other issue, and I'm going to say it every episode until we have an agreement. I may not say it every episode because Coco won't let me and he'll yell in my ear. There is no deadline to get an agreement by June 1st. There's no deadline to get an agreement by June 4th. There is no deadline to start spring training by June 10th. None of that exists. Nothing personal fans know. The deadline is August 1st. That's when the games have to start to get a half a season in, which will count. And I believe there will be an economic agreement. We just got to worry about health. Two Damian Lillards in back-to-back shows. That's a first. Damian Lillard plays for the Portland Trailblazers. It's a so you want to talk to Samson. So we're here toward the end of May. We're recording the end-of-month mailbag. Please get in there. Five-star review on Apple. Please ask a question in your review, and I'll try to get to it on this month's mailbag, the May mailbag, which will be released next week sometime or the first Saturday of the month. Go to the new YouTube channel. A lot of people asking me how to find the new YouTube channel, by the way. And here's my answer. I have no idea. I can't find it either. I search nothing personal, David Sampson on YouTube. I get to a bunch of videos. I look at and I click it and then there's a subscribe button and then there's like 20 people who subscribed instead of the thousands watching. I don't get it, but please find it, subscribe to it. I actually don't know why because that's where all the videos are going to rest if you want to watch this, but I do appreciate that you subscribe to the podcast. That's important too. So the So You Want to Talk to Samson is a segment we do where someone asks a question and someone asked a Damian Lillard question. Can you please explain what happened with Damian Lillard now saying 
that a play-in tournament would be acceptable when yesterday he said that he didn't want to come back to play? The answer is sort of quick but interesting. What he actually said is that he didn't want to come back and play games that didn't matter. He felt that he didn't have a realistic chance of making the playoffs that he wasn't going to come back and play. Now, he walked back many of his statements, and he did what usually the players do or what executives do or what people in the media do. Oh, my, you were recording? Ah, oh, I didn't even know that. Wait, were we on the record? Wait, I'm sorry, was that microphone on? I didn't mean that. I, I, wasn't, I didn't even hear your question. I had my AirPods in. I was singing to Little Dicky. So why is Damian Lillard changing his mind? And I am going to explain why, because when you are out there as a player during a pandemic, and for whatever reason, word comes out that you're being a little petulant or that you're not interested in playing. Remember when the Warriors came out and Steve Kerr said, we're in off-season mode, we are done like toast. God, that's not the exact word, is it, Coca? Is it toast like butter, burnt like toast? We are toasted. Maybe it's just we are toasted. And Steve Kerr got some got some flack and walked it back and said, we'll do whatever is necessary. If the regular season comes back, it comes back. Same thing happened to Damian Lillard. That's all it was. Got ahead of himself, said some things he probably shouldn't have said. And when you do that, you end up having to walk it back. He could have doubled down. That's become a pretty popular thing in the last few years, doubling down on things you say. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you're right. The doubling down can make it worse. It can make it better. It never makes it neutral. The Portland Trailblazers, as we said, are three and a half games out of the playoffs. Did we say that, Coca? I'd have to go back to the previous show. I think we talked about it this week. So if there is some sort of play-in tournament where they actually have an opportunity, great. But his view is three and a half games back. If we only play 10 more regular season games, you're not going to make up three and a half games in 10. It's very unlikely, or 15 even. So then the question is, why do we get our bodies back in shape and risk the health hazards of spring training and all the other things we have to do if we really don't have a significant chance of making the playoffs? But a play-in tournament, that means if I'm the 12th ranked team and only eight teams make it, but... Now, eight teams are going to make it, but we all have the same chance. Does that mean the fourth seed has the same chance as the 12th seed? I don't know. I think it'd be a playing tournament just to become the eighth seed. So that means the eighth seed who had a three-and-a-half game lead has his entire three-and-a-half game lead completely wiped away by a playing tournament. Or... Is it possible that the AC gets a buy in the first round of a play-in tournament so the lower seeds play each other then eliminate themselves? So therefore, Damian Lillard would be coming back for one game or a two out of three series? Is it some sort of round robin? A lot of questions need to be answered. We've gotten a lot of exciting momentum about Disney World, about hockey, about baseball. It is exciting about baseball. I do think that baseball wants and can come back, assuming health. But all of this, testing, Testing, one, two, three. Every time I do an interview on this microphone or any microphone, the producer is always in your ear and says, test your mic. And everyone in the world says, testing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Testing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I want you to know that ever since my first day at CBS Sports HQ, and now I do it on every station I am on, anytime I have a microphone, if you say testing, I say testing, 867-5309.
Okay. I watched a movie because someone DM'd me at David P. Sampson. Thank you for following me. And thank you for DMing with great movie suggestions. I appreciate it. And you asked me to watch a movie, so I did. Sometimes I get great suggestions from people. I really do. The question was, will you watch a movie called Death of Stalin? Stalin. There's a chance I say his name wrong. Talk about the bad guy in Russia. Stalin, we'll call him. The Death of Stalin. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know what it was about. I was thinking about the Brad Pitt and Glorious Bastards movie. I was thinking it could be a, is it a documentary? Is it a farce? I had no idea. But as a favor to you, good sir, I watched it. And guess who stars in it? Steve Buscemi, the guy from The Big Lebowski, that hilarious actor. You've seen him. The one who actually dies and his ashes blow in the face of Jeff Bridges and John Goodman. Which, by the way, is one of the top three funniest scenes of any movie of all time. So Death of Stalin is about what happens. Isn't it funny that movies that take place in Russia or Germany or India or anywhere where there's another language spoken, everyone speaks English, but with the accent of the country where they're in. So every actor in this movie is speaking English with a Russian accent. And this is all about Stalin, him dying, and who's going to take over, how his funeral is going to go, who plans it, all the different warring factions about the people who want control. And I will admit it, there were several times that I found myself laughing hysterically at this movie. It is one of those strange movies that uh, will not find a big niche audience. I found it on a streaming service or on demand. I can't remember where. I found the writing to be decent, the acting moderate, some of the jokes funny, but the subject matter is rough because there's not enough understanding that as an audience member, I'm actually watching this show and I'm thinking, Stalin, I don't want to laugh at the way he lived his life and the way the torture and the death and the killing and the imprisonments and the war and the this and the that. But you find, like, I, I, for example, it, it brought me back to uh, Jojo Rabbit is what I thought of during this movie. Jojo Rabbit was the movie nominated for an Academy Award. And Jojo Rabbit, and I'm going to get the name wrong, I want to name, say it was directed by Wahidi Tahiti. It, but I don't think that's even close, but it, he's a very talented guy. His name Coke is giving it to me right now because he's so annoyed. It's Taika Watiti. I, I got that right. But anyway, I didn't really get it right. I thought it was Tahiti Wahidi. So in any case, Jojo Rabbit, one of the characters in Jojo Rabbit is Hitler. And Hitler's a figment of a little boy's imagination. And the little boy's the star of the movie. And Jojo Rabbit is a brilliant, brilliant movie. But I found myself saying it's not great. And it was actually played by Taika Waititi, played Hitler in the movie. And it's not great for me to laugh, although very talented in this movie, Jojo Rabbit, and very talented performances in Death of Stalin. But you just feel guilty, right? Like you, you want to root against the character. You want to root against anyone who respects the character. You want to root against anyone who believes in anything this character believes in because it's not like this character is Hannibal Lecter, a made-up villain, or... Uh, uh, what's the name, Anton Sugar in uh, uh, No Country for Old Men, where you, it's, you can root against someone who's just that evil, who's not real. 
but the figment of a writer's imagination. But Stalin was real. And by the way, spoiler alert, in the beginning of the movie, he dies. Do you want to bet on that? People are going to disagree and they're going to say it's not the beginning of the movie. It's more toward the later part of the beginning, but that's still the beginning. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's every movie, every story. Every story I tell, there's one thing you I learned. English. Horace Mann, Mr. Blagden, 12th grade, Crawford Blagden, who would smoke in our room. He would smoke pipes that didn't necessarily have tobacco in it in our room at Horace Mann. God, there was so much stuff going on at Horace Mann. I love that school. Everything I know, I learned at Horace Mann. Everything, for better or for worse. And we'd listen to music like the band, and he'd tell stories. Why was I talking about Mr. Blagden? Coca, I have no ideas. Today, Thursday, this has to be a Thursday show. Anyway, I want to talk about betting. Because, oh, stories. <laughs> that wasn't even Coca. I just came back to me. Stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Stalin dies at the end of the beginning. So it's still the beginning. But I want to talk about sports betting because I would bet you on it. You know I bet a dollar because you watch Trading Places. And you know one of my favorite, number one, Eddie Murphy movies. You know they bet a dollar. Randolph, Mortimer Duke. Something happened in the business world yesterday, and it is fascinating. It may have happened the day before, I can't remember, but it absolutely fascinated me. DraftKings is a company, you remember, that's where it used to be fantasy, and you would gamble on daily fantasy. It's completely expanded. It's literally a gambling site. The word I hear the most in the studio at CBS Sports HQ is betting. Sports betting, what are the odds? What's the line? Did you see that bad beat? Did you see that cover, that backdoor? Remember backdoor? That may have even been a word of the day one day. Can't remember. Coca keeps track of that. DraftKings stock during this pandemic has gone up. And the reason why is that there are experts who say the industry of sports betting is poised to explode. I want to talk about that. Also, There's competitors to DraftKings. You've got Action Network. You've got other sites that are legal and illegal where you can gamble and bet. Sports betting is legal in many states right now. It doesn't stop people from doing it. But what fascinates me about it is that DraftKings may be actually in talks. Coke is telling me, whispering to me, by the way, that Action Network is not a direct competitor. FanDuel is. Thank you for that. But I know on Action Network that there is betting involved because I see lines all the time. You can actually look at lines, but you don't bet on Action Network. Whereas on DraftKings and FanDuel, you can bet. Can you even bet on DraftKings from a state where they don't allow online betting or where, where sports betting is not legal? You have to be in a state where it is legal is what I would assume. So is sport betting legal in Florida? Not that anyone at Sports HQ is actually betting, because I don't believe any of them are. I think they just look at the lines and then bet with each other a dollar. So DraftKings was rumored to be actually looking at a possible bid to buy Bleacher Report, and its stock soared. DraftKings, believing that they're going to be flush with cash because, and here's where the kicker comes in, for whatever reason, People believe that the absence of sports has made people want to bet more money. And once there's live sports again, they are going to gamble like crazy. 
Now, CBS Sports HQ is into fantasy. It's into gambling. People watch it to learn fantasy and gambling and gamble on fantasy and fantasy gamble and run a team from a fantasy standpoint because it'll never be from an actual standpoint. I get it. But the numbers tell me that it's not going to work exactly in straight line math. So here's the math. 162 games in a baseball season. Let's say that you bet a dollar a game. That's $162 you'll bet over a full season. What, assuming one game per day, one game per team. Whatever you want to say, just assume for Christ's sake, 162 games bet, Matt. My God. Okay. Only 81 games played. Are you now going to bet $2 a game and risk the same $162? Or are you going to bet $1 a game, just better for fewer games, and therefore only bet $81, not 162 or are you going to actually bet $4 a game, bet $320, and risk twice as much as you would have risked had there been a full season? That's what it would mean to me, an exploding industry, where people are willing to risk more, where gambling becomes more accessible, more states make it. We're in a pandemic. We're in the beginning of a recession, potentially. Unemployment over $40 million. Dollars are tight, tight. It's why for our beard challenge, I ask you if you have any extra money, and I am asking this instead of gambling it, I'm asking you to please donate it. But the reality is, I don't believe that right now there will be more money put into gambling. I think there will be a recovery faster in the gambling industry than other industries. There will be people betting on games before they go to games. There will be people there. <laughs> There will be people betting on games before they go to a movie theater. There may be people betting on games before they get on an airplane or a cruise. But to think that all of a sudden people's disposable income will be the same or greater than what it was is simply not accurate. I am bullish on sports betting, there is no doubt. But the way the leagues have all embraced it, and are doing deals with casinos and online betting establishments. It opens up a huge Pandora's box of issues, and those issues will have to be dealt with. ML Beer Challenge, day 74. Day 74 is going to a group called One Fair Wage. Please get on my Twitter at David P. Sampson. Get into the DMs. Give me suggestions. Thank you for this one. One Fair Wage is an organization that is dedicated to taking care of those individuals who lost their ability to work because of COVID-19. That's the exact type of charity that I'm looking for. It's day 74. We're doing $1,000 a day until day 100, but this beard's growing until we've got opening day. ML Beard Challenge, day 74. One Fair Wage, $1,000. Okay, part of what we do in Wait to See is that we do a bunch of corrections as well. And I want to get to some corrections right now. When I'm wrong in a show, if Coca doesn't correct me and I answer it right there, like with Tahiti Wahiti, I'll correct it right then and there. Or it's Tahiti Wahiti. I can't remember. I already forgot. But in any case, I'll correct it. 
And when people get into me on Instagram, Instagram, David P. Sampson, Twitter, David P. Sampson, whatever it is, I got two. First one, I mentioned a Bruce Springsteen song called Because the Night. Because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night. I said it wasn't a Natalie Merchant song. I said it was a Bruce Springsteen song. Wrong. It's not 10,000 Maniacs. It's not Bruce Springsteen. It's Patti Smith. Or is it Patti Smythe? Oh, my God. I don't know if it's Patti Smith or Patti Smythe. I think it's Patti Smith. I'm going Patty Smith so I don't have to do a back-to-back correction. Number two, I got a text when I explained what the postseason shares were. This was also in my Twitter. On a show recently, I don't remember when, we talked about postseason shares the players get, and the more games played during a series, the more money that players get to share, and therefore shares go up. It was correctly pointed out that actually what happens is that the amount of a postseason share is based on the first four games of the League Championship Series and the World Series. The amount of the share does go up the bigger the stadium because the gate receipts are more. But the union does get money from the last three games also. So the amount of money that in general goes to players, the amount of money that generally goes to players does increase the longer the series goes. So I appreciate that, Nick, you reaching out. I think you're right. I think I'm right. The postseason share situation can be a little bit complicated. So finally, I say that I have one more correction. Because of the night, that song was co-written by Bruce Springsteen. Now you're telling me, Coca, technically I was right. I take that correction halfway back. Because when it comes to corrections, I'm not going to wear one that I don't have to. Because in this part of the show, it's definitely business. It's nothing personal.